a lot can happen in one year. I wonder if you can scan back through the years of your life and pinpoint the most decisive, action-packed year. Think about it. In one year, you can move to a new place. You can get a new job. You can fall in love. You can become a Christian. You might retire. You might endure loss or tragedy. You might even win the lottery. One year. If I had to pinpoint one year that's the most action-packed, maybe decisive for me, it might be 2017, still pretty recent. But I think I took 13 seminary classes. I went to Washington, D.C., Georgia, Chicago, Nashville. And in the span of a month, I graduated from seminary and was installed as the pastor of Old Oak Bible Church. Praise God. There are big, decisive years, if we think about it, in United States history when either a lot happened or really important things happened. So we can pick one from each century. There are lots to choose from. In the 1700s, you know, probably the most obvious one is 1776, declared independence. 1800s, maybe it's 1865. Civil War ended, President Lincoln assassinated. 1900s, the 20th century, a lot to choose from. One year that maybe a lot of you lived through, 1968. So much happened that year. The Tet Offensive in Vietnam. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, and then he was assassinated the same year. Assassination of Bobby Kennedy, and maybe most importantly, in 1968, the Beatles released Hey Jude. (laughs) If we're thinking of the 21st century, uh, the first decade of it, uh, you can think of 2001 with the September 11th attacks and the war, war in Afghanistan. So we're in the book of Exodus. Last week, we covered the first two chapters. What's the timetable in those first two chapters? And what's the span of time represented there? It's hundreds of years. From the time of the patriarchs, that's when Joseph and his brothers died, to the time of this new Pharaoh described in chapter 1, verse 8. That's a time period of hundreds of years. And even when Moses enters the scene in chapter 2, We get large chunks of his life summarized in a matter of a few short paragraphs. I mean, he was 40 years old by the time he left Egypt, and he was 80 years old by the time he leaves Midian. But then, after the first two chapters, everything almost halts to a creeping pace. All of the action from chapters 3 to 40 happens roughly in a span of one year. What a crazy, jam-packed year that was. Well, today we're going to start looking at that crazy year, and we're going to do this from chapters 3 to 6 in Exodus. And what comes to the forefront at the beginning of this year is a renewed knowledge and even a new knowledge of God himself, of the one true God. So at the outset of this deliverance, of this decisive year, What does God want for his people? God wants his people to know him. So you remember how the first two chapters closed. It was with the Israelites crying out to God in their darkness. You know, a whole lot of years had gone by slowly. It seems to be no action from the Lord. But it said God heard them. But in chapters 3 to 6, we find that even though God heard them, 
these dark times don't really go away. Instead, things actually get worse before they get better. God comes to them and tells them to see through their darkness and to know him in the midst of it. To know the one who is with them, who is for them, who makes promises to them. So in Exodus 3 to 6, we find more big obstacles to the plan of God. But in Exodus 3 to 6, when we find big obstacles, we find a bigger God. So we can summarize the main takeaway of our time like this. When we see how desperate our situation is, when we see how sinful we are, when we see even how weak our faith is, that's when we must know how great God is. That's when we must know how great God is. You think of the turning point in that sentence. Knowing God. That's what we want to do from this passage. Know God. And we're going to organize our knowing God from this passage under two headings. The God who has appeared, focusing mainly on the beginning part of chapter 3, and knowing the God who has overcome, focusing mainly on the rest of the passage. Now, just to give you a heads up, we will read large portions of these chapters, but we're not going to read it all consecutively. I know many of you were probably wondering that. You know, the reason we announce the text beforehand is so that you'll read it beforehand, which if you do this on your own, it'll probably take about 15 to 20 minutes. That's, even if you have an audio recording of it, that's about how long it takes. And if you have access to the internet, you can get free audio recordings, and the guy has a super cool deep voice who does the ESV, uh, and you can listen to those for free. So if you're not there, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. You'll find it on page 46 in the Red Bible that's in the pew racks. As always, friends, you will be greatly helped if you have a Bible open during this sermon. In fact, it will be easy to get lost if you do not have a Bible open. That's sort of a parable for all of life. So like our study in Genesis last year, we want to take, uh, we want to take in the bigger picture of Exodus. So if, if it's like a safari... I don't know if you've been on a safari. If it's like a safari, we, we're not taking a helicopter tour. Neither are we taking a hike. We're taking something like a Jeep tour. You're going to see some small things, able to get out at certain points. We want to cover a large amount of land in a relatively short amount of time. All right, so let's look at chapters 3 to 6 just at a glance, trying to get a grasp of what's going on. Okay, so chapters 3 and 4. They deal mostly with God and with Moses. So in these chapters, God reveals himself to Moses. See verses 1 to 6, reveals himself in the burning bush. And God speaks of how he will use Moses. really takes place from verses 7 to 12. And then God responds to Moses' repeated objections. really happens from chapter 3, verse 13 all the way to the middle of chapter 4, verse 17. That's God responding to Moses' objections. And then just continue chapter 4, verses 18 to 31, is a bit of a transition period. So that's Moses going from Midian back to Egypt. So he leaves Midian in verses 18 to 23 in uh, chapter 4. He prepares his family in verses 24 to 26. It's an interesting account there. 
And then in, in verses 27 to 31 of chapter 4, uh, Moses is preparing to go back to Egypt. He illustrates the sage-wise old proverb that brothers don't shake hands. Brothers got a hug. Oh, only one person got that reference. Man, uh, that's from Tommy Boy. Um, we're, all right, so chapters 5 and 6, just looking at it at a glance. We're back in Egypt, okay? Moses' and Aaron's first encounter with Pharaoh does not go well. The Israelites actually end up in a worse situation. So then you look by the end of chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. By the end of chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, the Israelites blame Moses and Aaron for what's happening. So Moses goes back to the Lord in chapter 5, verse 22. And then God reiterates his promise, sends Moses back to the Israelites and back to Pharaoh. And then chapter 6 closes with a genealogy, our favorite portions of the Bible. But it closes with a genealogy of Moses and of Aaron. It indicates Moses and Aaron's importance. And, it's a sum- and it summarizes what's happened so far. All right, that's chapters 3 to 6 at a glance. You got the basic idea what's going on? Okay. Now remember what God wants them to know at this point. What God wants Moses and all the people to know. Him. God wants them to know him. But what must happen for them to know him? For people to know God, he must appear or reveal himself. So this explains the first heading of our time. Know the God who has appeared. So flip back to chapter 3, and you can follow along as I read verses 1 to 15. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, that's Sinai, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh 
and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the the people out of Egypt and you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. We want to know the God who appears here. So what do we see about God in these verses? I think we could see at least five different things, five different attributes of God from the beginning of this time in Exodus 3 to 6. For the first thing, that we see that the God who appears is the God who speaks. The God who appears is the God who speaks. Friends, this is a loving thing for God to do. Look at the very first words of God when he speaks to Moses. Verse 4. He says, Moses, Moses. Now in that day, saying someone's name twice was a way to express endearment, friendship, even affection. Now Moses didn't know he was talking to him yet. But whoever that voice came from, he must have known that it cared about him and that he had concern for him. So thinking of God's speech to us, the fact that God speaks, that shows his care and his love for us. Friends, why is it the case? Why is it the case that God's speech is loving and caring? And we think of our experience with speech, and I don't know, it's a little complicated. We know people who we wish wouldn't speak so much as they do. And it's kind of ironic coming from a guy who preaches 45-minute sermons. Our, our experience with speech is a little complicated. We know that speech can be hurtful or deceiving. But we also know, we also know that speech can be life-giving. The book of Proverbs says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Further, we know that speech can be helpful. Just as we know lots of people we wish wouldn't talk so much, we also know people who we wish would talk more. I mean, how many times have you heard when looking at a baby, you just, oh, I just wish they, I knew what they were thinking? Well, that's the concept behind the great film from 1989, Look Who's Talking, starring John Travolta. That God speaks is both life-giving and helpfully revealing. Because God has spoken, we can know him and we can know how we have life in him. You think of the nature of God's speech to Moses here. He speaks in such a way that Moses can understand. And he speaks in such a way that Moses can communicate that speech to other people. Friends, today, God continues to speak. God continues to speak through his word, the Bible. This is a living book 
through which he reveals himself, makes us wise unto salvation, and sanctifies his people. In other words, makes them more like his son, Jesus. If the Bible is God's speech, the Apostle Peter says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. It's written down. If the Bible is God's speech, will we listen? Will we listen? Could there be more important words if they come from God himself? We have the words of life from the Lord. Where else shall we go? There's, today there's this obsession, there's this hankering for supposed private revelations from God apart from the Bible. Think of popular books such as Heaven is for Real or Jesus Calling. Those kinds of books undermine, however subtly or overtly, they undermine the sufficiency of the Bible. They make us think, however subtly or overtly, that what God has said to us is not enough. Why don't we listen to God's speech? Why don't we listen to his word? Well, maybe it's because we don't think hard enough about the preciousness of having words from God. Maybe we don't think hard enough about it. Maybe it's because we don't like God's speech and we would rather listen to what doesn't challenge us. God speaks. The God who appears is a speaking God. So God spoke, Moses listened, but in speaking, who did God reveal himself to be? The second attribute we see from God here is that he is holy. He is holy. Now I know, I know what a lot of you might be thinking. You've been in church a long time. Hearing the phrase, God is holy, probably rings in your ears something like the sky is blue. Of course, it's obvious. God is holy. You see here, verse 5, God tells Moses that the place in which he is standing is holy ground. The idea here is that anything associated with God partakes of that characteristic with him, or at least should partake. But what does that mean? If you've heard it so much, God is holy, can you explain it? What does it mean for God to be holy? Well, the most basic idea of it, of God's holiness, it means that he is different, that he is unique, that he is set apart. Friends, that he is not like us. Nothing is like him. That he is utterly unique and utterly pure. And here, in this passage, Exodus 3, how does God's holiness show up? It shows up in fire. And it does so in other places in the Bible too, if you're familiar. Back in Genesis chapter 15, God shows up to Abraham in a smoking pot of fire. And then later in Exodus, God will show up in a pillar of smoke and fire. There's a quality about holiness that fire represents well. You see, there's something about fire that draws us in. I don't know about you, I could, just, I could sit at a bonfire and just look at it. It's intriguing, it's mesmerizing. But also it's warm, it draws us in that way too. But then there's something else about fire that tells us to keep our distance. Because if we get too close, we will get burned. So the same happens here. Look at what Moses does in verse 6. 
He hid his face. Friends, that's because in the light of God's holiness, we have a keen awareness or should have a keen awareness of our sinfulness. The same thing happened to Isaiah, who before the Lord cried out that he was a man of unclean lips. So God being holy reminds us that when we approach him, we are to have reverence, decorum, respect, humility. God is high above us. Theologians call this God being transcendent. God being transcendent. And yet here, when we see God as holy, when we see God as transcendent, nonetheless, he invites Moses in. Look at verse 8. God has come down to be with his people. So this is the God of the Bible, the one true God. He is utterly holy, unique, high above us. But friends, that does not mean that he is distant. God's holiness does not mean that he doesn't hear, that he doesn't care, that he doesn't impact and affect our lives. So what have we seen so far? Those two different attributes of God. We see that God is holy and that God speaks to us. We see here that God is transcendent and God is imminent. That's I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, in case you wanted to spell it. God is transcendent and imminent. God is high above us and God has come down to us. God is great and God is good. I don't know of anyone who's captured this better than C.S. Lewis when describing Aslan the lion. I know I've shared this before, but it's just so good. He says this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God transcendent, God imminent. You look at verse 6. You see the third thing about God from this passage. Verse 6. God is unchanging. Another word for that, immutable. I know, I know. Those of you sitting in church, been here a long time, this might be another just basic for you. God is unchanging. But you know, Professional basketball players still shoot free throws at the end of practice. They don't leave the basics behind. God is unchanging. God tells Moses that he is the God of his father, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So that means what the people knew about God from the past hasn't changed in the present and won't change in the future. This stood in stark contrast to the so-called gods of their day who were just as whimsical, just as flimsy, and through just as many tantrums as people do. No, God is unchanging. Friends, think of what difference this would make for Moses. God told Moses that he is the God of his father. Of his father. We don't know much about Moses' dad. We find out his name in chapter 6, Amram. But the unchanging nature of God in Moses' situation should have made Moses think like this. The God who was enough for my dad 
during the dark times of frightful persecution, the God who was enough for my dad during that time will be enough for me as well. That's the difference that the unchanging nature of God should have made in Moses. Friends, God can never cease to be who he is. He never, he never increases. He doesn't need to increase. He will never decrease. He is perfect and remains perfect always. So just reflecting on this for a moment, a lot of times we just feel this longing. Man, I just wish I was around during the Bible times. How cool that would have been. My faith would have been so stoked. Just would have been so easy to follow the Lord during that time. I think the unchanging nature of God pushes back on that a little bit. Did we, not, we may not be around in the Bible times, but you know who still is around? The God of the Bible times. He is the same God as he was in the Bible as he is today. His name is not I was. His name is I am. And speaking of God's name, that's the fourth thing we see about God here. So we're discovering how this God who appears to Moses, we're discovering who he is. What we're doing is not guesswork. It's not putting God through a personality test, trying to figure out what Disney princess he is. No, we are listening to what he's revealed himself to be. So skip down to verse 13. You find the fourth thing we see about God here, his name, his name. So Moses is kind of like the guy at church who you've met eight times, but he still doesn't know your name. But in a way, we got to give Moses some slack here. Moses' question is clarifying. The God of your fathers, that title, that might mean different things to different Israelites. You think about spending 400 years around pagan worship. Their worship uh, might have had some pagan gods thrown into the mix. Further, at that time, God was known by a variety of names. God Most High, God Almighty. Here, God reveals his proper name, Yahweh. So when we read Genesis, we find that this name was known by earlier generations, but it was not prominently used. So real quick, seeing God's name. This is a housekeeping note. We are going to get out our dust and broom. So I want to make sure. Coming to Exodus 3 is as good of time as ever to address this. You see that word, the Lord, all caps. You see that? The Lord, all caps, is the word Yahweh or Jehovah. So now let me explain a little bit. Now the Jewish people would come to refuse to speak the personal name of God for fear that they might take it in vain. So they would use the word Lord or Master, which is Adonai, instead of that proper name. So the Hebrew Bible was originally written without vowels. You think about how it saves space that way. But when they added vowels to help pronounce words, they used vowels from Adonai and added them to the consonants of Yahweh. So no one would read the name accidentally. So that's where we get the name Jehovah. So in the 16th century, Christian scholars took this combination, transliterated it, or translating based on how it sounds, as Jehovah. So the actual name is Y-H-W-H, usually written and pronounced as Yahweh. 
So when you see that title, the Lord, all caps, it's this name, Yahweh. Yahweh means I am who I am. There might be a little footnote there. It could also mean I will be who I will be. Or, or it could mean I cause to be what I cause to be. It's just that simple to be verb. It's simple, and yet it's profound. I am who I am. You think about what this communicates, what God's name communicates about himself. I think as we've gone over, it at least communicates that he's unchanging, that who he has been is who he always will be, that who he will be in the future is who he is now. But you think about it a little bit more. I am who I am. If we started off a sentence, I am, you finish it with something, right? Subject, verb, predicate. So you say, I am an engineer. Uh, relevant today, I am a mother. You could say, I am tall. You could say, I am the Eggman. I am the walrus. God, on the other hand, is simply I am. He's not defined by anything outside of himself. And he is not someone we can shape into whatever we want him to be. He is. He is. Nothing constrains him outside of himself. One commentator says this, God will always act in a way that is consistent with his holiness and with his word. Nothing else constrains him. So fifth thing we see about God when he appears to Moses is that he is redeemer. He is redeemer. So what's the main thing God is saying when he appears to Moses? You just glance through it, verses 1 to 15. You notice all those I will statements. Here, God is a promise-making God. And overall, his overall mission, verse 8, says, I have come down to deliver. This is the God of salvation, of deliverance, of redemption. And God tells that this is how he will know that he is God. You look at that in verse 12. This is a sign for him when they're out of Egypt and worshiping him on Mount Sinai, when they have been delivered. God spells out further what he will do for the Israelites in chapter 6. Just flip there real quick. Chapter 6, you look at verses 6 to 7. We noticed these verses last week. As we're reading these, I want you to notice the transfer from one kingdom to another, from one master to another. Chapter 6, verses 6 to 7. It says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, the God who is Redeemer. So think about this, friends. What freedom looked like for the Israelites was not just no longer belonging to the Egyptians. What freedom looked like for the Israelites was no longer belonging to the Egyptians, but now belonging to God himself. Why spend so much time trying to know God? At the beginning of Exodus 3, we got a lot left to cover. Don't worry, we are wrapping up soon. 
we have to say, we spend so much time trying to know God because God is the greatest subject of study and inquiry there is. But it's not just because we find him interesting. It's because we find him praiseworthy and we want to worship him. His beauty and his majesty and his might and his glory and his mercy and his love are beyond what we could have ever dreamt up on our own. We spend time trying to know God because if we've been around a long time, if we've been Christians a long time, we can take this for granted. Just the simple act of trying to know God. I'm quoting C.S. Lewis again because he's smart and I think he gets this point well. In his short novel, The Great Divorce, which contains interactions between those in heaven and those in hell. One man who's witnessed much uh, describes certain people he's seen missing out simply on knowing God. He says there have been men before who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself as if the good Lord had nothing to do but exist. There have been some who were so occupied in spreading Christianity that they never gave a thought to Christ. Man, you see it in smaller matters. Did you ever know a lover of books that with all his first editions and signed copies had lost the power to read them? Or an organizer of charities that had lost all love for the poor? It is the subtlest of all snares. Brothers and sisters, beware familiarity. If you've been around God a long time, if he has become ho-hum, you have not seen anything of him yet. Know your God. And his book, Knowing God, might be relevant to the topic of knowing God, as we're talking about. J.I. Packer writes that knowing God involves at least four things. Knowing God involves at least four things. First, it involves listening to God's word. This is what we've done. We listen to how he's revealed himself. Listen to how he revealed himself with Moses. Secondly, knowing God involves realizing God's nature and character as his word and work reveal. This is what we've spent time doing, seeing different attributes of God. Thirdly, knowing God involves accepting his invitation and doing what he commands responding in the way he calls us to respond, just as Moses does, take off your sandals, and he does. Our call, repent and believe the gospel. That's the call to response. Fourthly, how do we know God? What does that involve? It involves recognizing and rejoicing in the love that God has shown us, that we are his forever. All right, we just, we, we gotta say one more thing about this point of knowing God, knowing the God who has appeared, we talked about how we can forget God and how we can forget how important knowing God is. We talked about what knowing God involves, just four quick things. But there, this is another familiar point, and I want you to bear with me. We have to say that God has made himself fully known through his son, Jesus Christ. We have to say, if we don't know Jesus we don't know God. Here in Exodus 3, the one who appears in the burning bush is called the angel of the Lord. He's also called Yahweh. 
God himself. Here, then, the angel is not a reduced version of God. He is called God. Yet the angel is how sinful and limited Moses can listen to and look upon the omnipresent and holy God. So as we read earlier, later on, Jesus will say, before Abraham was, I am. Claiming to be, I am who I am. Yahweh in himself. In Jesus, God has come down and he's done so with the same mission, deliverance. He says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I came to lay my life down for the sheep. So the God who is above us, transcendent, has also walked among us, imminent. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son has made him known. We said that here in Exodus 3, that God makes himself known in his act of redemption or salvation. So the sign for that for Moses would be the Exodus event. Later on, to say Yahweh was to think of the Exodus. Read how the Ten Commandments begin in Exodus 20. But to say Jesus for the Christian is to think of the cross. The cross is God making himself known through his Son by his greatest act of salvation and redemption. It is in the cross that we see God's holiness and his wrath against sin. It's in the cross that we see God's love, that the incarnate, begotten Son of God dies in our place so that us sinners can be pardoned and be made into God's sons and daughters. The cross of Jesus Christ is God's ultimate act of redemption whereby we are delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his son. So just as the Israelites would not be able to escape Egypt on their own, friends, so we will not be able to escape the bondage of our sin on our own. We need a deliverer, and his name is Jesus. So brothers and sisters, behold your Redeemer. And friend, if you do not have Jesus, you face sin and the God, the holy judge, you face that on your own. The good news is that Jesus has accomplished this deliverance. All we do now is receive it. In Jesus' words, we receive it by repenting and believing. That is by turning away from for living for yourself and turning toward faith in him, trusting in his perfect life and his substitutionary death in your place. When we do that, we can rejoice and rest that we are his forever, purchased by his blood, and will one day see his face. Know the God who has appeared. Well, friends, imagine taking all this in, all that, who God is, just skimming the surface, as glorious as it is there, you take all of that in and say, but what about this? Imagine taking all of this in and then saying, well, actually, the two favorite words that every woman loves to hear uh, from men, well, actually. Imagine taking all of this in and then things go from bad to worse. Well, we don't have to imagine that because that's exactly what happens in the story. God gives a big display to Moses of who he is, and then there comes a series of obstacles in the form of unbelief and despair. 
So I know we've spent a disproportionate amount of time on each part of the passage. Remember, it's a Jeep tour. We get out at certain points. We drive at others. So briefly, let's take a tour of the different obstacles placed in front of this big and glorious God. This is a point where it's important to have the Bible open. So chapter 3, verse 11, noticing the obstacles. Chapter 3, verse 11, was Moses asked, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Another obstacle, chapter 3, verse 13. What if they ask me what your name is? Chapter 4, verse 1, obstacle, they won't believe me. Chapter 4, verse 10, I'm not eloquent. Chapter 4, verse 13, straight up, send somebody else. Chapter 4, verse 24, there's Moses facing God's anger for his disobedience and not consecrating his son to him. Chapter 5, verse 9, obstacle. They finally get to Pharaoh. Pharaoh understands the nature of their demand. This would be more than for three days. And he piles heavier work on the Israelites. You talk about obstacle. Chapter 5, verse 21, obstacle. The Israelites blame Moses and Aaron for their heavier work. Chapter 6, verse 9, the Israelites still won't listen to Moses or Aaron. All right, so we're going to loop around and go back through it. Just going to see quickly how God answered and overcame each one of those obstacles. So, for example, I right, go back to chapter 3, verse 14. Moses asks what God's name is, and boy, does, Moses, does God give an answer. Moses tells God they won't believe him, but God gives Moses signs to give Moses credibility and display God's power. Happens from chapter 4, verses 2 to 9. In response to Moses' desire not to go, God answers it by sending Moses' brother Aaron to go with him. In response to Moses' disobedience, God seems to lay it on his wife's heart to obey him instead. In response to Pharaoh's you're piling on heavier work, we read back in chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, that God accounted for this, that he knew this was going to happen. In response to the Israelites' anger against Moses and Aaron, God answers it in a weird way, maybe not how we would answer it, but he answers it with a genealogy that closes chapter 6. You look at chapter 6, verse 25. It says, These are the Aaron and the Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. These are the Aaron and the Moses. Moses had gone AWOL for 40 years after growing up closely associated with Egypt. And now he comes back claiming to represent God. And Aaron's his brother right by his side. So this genealogy demonstrates to the Israelites that Moses and Aaron are legitimate. So see in that brief tour, all that God answers, that God overcomes every obstacle, you see God's patience here. That even when our obstacles are petty, even when they're lame excuses showing our lack of trust in him, he bothers with us still and he provides. You see God's patience and his sovereignty here that he rules over all places, people, and things, that he's accounted for each one of these obstacles, that there is nothing that can knock him off course. 
But friends, there's a deeper foundation to every one of God's answers to the obstacles that Moses and other people set before him. There's a deeper foundation. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. Now, before God runs through all of the promises to his people, what does he say to Moses? How does he begin? Chapter 6, verse 2, he says, I am the Lord. He is I am. There is nothing and no one that constrains him. There is no shadow of turning with him, as the hymn says. He will be who he is now, and he will be who he has been in the past. This is God. And then we go back to chapter 3, verse 12. I am the Lord, God says. And he tells Moses that I will be with you. We know who God is, and we know that this God is with us. So friends, whatever is in front of us, whether it's the call to share Jesus with a friend, whether it's a besetting sin, whether it is a lingering loss, if it seems too big for you, if it seems too big for us, you're right. It is too big for us. God doesn't tell Moses to ignore the monumental task that's in front of him. No, God tells Moses not to ignore his God. Friends, what we need is not a bigger view of ourselves, just to dig a little deeper and realize the potential we had all along. What we need is a bigger view of God. That's why we spent so much time trying to know him. And a bigger view of God won't come without a bigger view of Christ, his son, who has made the name of Yahweh fully known. Jesus is the one who has overcome each of the obstacles that are set before us, our sin, our death, the world we are in, and our adversary, Satan, dying to defeat every one of them and rising in victory. For all that we face, and as we are sent out into the world to announce Jesus' victory, we hear very familiar words. Very familiar words from Jesus. I will be with you. So here is our resolve, knowing that the conquering Lord is with us. The end of Romans 8. If God is with us, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, all the saints adore thee, and we adore thee. We see but through a glass dimly, but what we do see is marvelous. And we thank you, God, that as splendorous and majestic as you are, that you have come down to dwell with us and to rescue us. We praise your name that is above us and that walks with us. 
There is none like you. So God, put it in our hearts to know you. And when we know you, we know that you are with us and there is no other peace like that. Thank you for the assurance that we are held in the palm of your hand because Jesus Christ stands in our place, his sinless life and his substitutionary death. He is the great redeemer. And so God, we ask that you would keep us for the rest of our days and bring us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.